but he was the first guy I'd ever been with who commented on different types of beauty like he would call it if there was like a curvy rockabilly chick with loads of tattoos he'd be like oh my god she's amazing or if there was like a really skinny androgynous looking chick like he'd be like oh my god she's awesome yeah and it made me believe him when he complimented me because I was like you genuinely do appreciate different types of beauty and I've seen you embody that marry him And welcome to Girls With Goals. I'm Neve Marr and I'm delighted to welcome to studio today sex columnist, film editor and PhD candidate Ro McDermott, stand-up comedian and activist Linda Hayden. A little bit later on we'll be talking to the captain of the Irish women's cricket team about ball scuffing, elitism and bringing cricket to the masses. But first, ladies, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks, Mel, yeah. So we're going to start with our game. It's called Six Words or Less and it's for our listeners and readers of Her.ie who may not know who you are so you have to describe yourself in six words or less and I think we'll go with Linda first okay Um, so let me have a think fun sized feisty feminist who fidgets oh my god I love how much alliteration was used in that (laughs) all the F's that was fantastic that was so beautiful I had like three that I couldn't pick from so can I be just extra and give all of them and then people can pick be as extra as you want yeah okay so my first one was cries a lot in public no damn I've already messed this up it was cries a lot publicly not your fault um (laughs) It happens a lot. Uh, writes feminism in blood and eyeliner. Oh. Or the Twitter bio one is shameless feminist, creator hag, tender-minded, tough-mindedness. Yeah, I really like that one as well. I love reading people's Twitter bios. It's oh, brilliant. Awesome. Tell us, well, you're only back in Ireland a few months. You've been in San Francisco, right? Yeah, I moved over. Uh, I went on a Fulbright and I studied there. I did a master's in sexuality studies and uh, that was for two years. And then I kind of convinced them to let me stay on and work in the college and do a bit of teaching in the department for another year. So I was there for three years and then they were finally like, I know you're taking the piss, get out. <laughs> your visa is done like get out um, and then Trump got elected and started deporting Irish people so it was like oh no I have to take this seriously oh, I actually yeah, have to go yeah. Yeah. yeah so you do the Dear Row column with the Irish Times and it's yeah. mostly sex isn't it it's kind of sex advice sexual questions usually <laughs> yeah but relationships as well isn't it <laughs> no it's meant to be about sex because they already have a couple of columns who address like relationship issues yeah. except I think they were slightly worried when I started and kind of understandably the entire magazine had an overhaul the weekend magazine and it was the first time they'd had a sex column in it so I think we've been trying to ease people into it a little bit so it's been slightly tame so my thing is that for a few weeks it was definitely a sex column with no sex. tame? I don't know I mean I think I saw one there about um, it was the premature ejaculation one. Oh yeah that's yeah that's the latest one yeah but that's like (laughs) seven months in okay, so I've okay. been building up to actually go and work on a talk about penis lads yeah. get ready <laughs> um, so it's been it's, there's been a lot of how libido affects relationships yeah. and stuff and now we're kind of getting you're into you're finally into it sex questions. Yeah. nice yeah. and Linda comedy yeah your um, first love yes uh, it's my self care as I said yeah I, I do it as an escape really it's when things happen just turn it into something funny and then try and make people laugh with it. So I love it. We were talking about this before you arrived here, Ro, and I think it's so funny when comedians say that it's a form of self-care because it's my worst nightmare, I was explaining to Linda, <laughs> to get up in front get of a room of people and, and try and make them laugh at you, essentially. Because, I mean, I know they're laughing with you, but 
They're kind of laughing at you as well. They're laughing at your life scenarios though. Yeah. I think that's the big thing. You know, it's if you make it relatable which it is because most of it is based in truth mm. it's just you kind of maybe jizz it up a little bit but um, I think if it's relatable then people will laugh at it because they'll go oh yeah yeah now I've had that happen so I think that's the key to kind of getting your audience on side and do you have like as a comedian do you have people ask you all the time I'm asking I'm framing this question so that I'm kind of asking it but I'm just joking as well mm-hmm. do people ask you what your go-to joke is all the time oh there's three things that people ask when three things that people say I'm going to ask when you do comedy it's um, number one what's your favourite joke okay number two is this going into your routine okay and number three you can have that ah! <laughs> oh what a gift what a gift they're giving okay I'm sure that's really annoying I will say I'm mixed I've, with I've, a couple I've of comedians I've said all of those things yeah I can tell when they're practicing a bit on me though so I totally get going are you going to use this because yeah. I can feel when it's going the other way and so, what, but what they do you are, say? What they're do you, all men I mean I what do you that. say to people when they say that to you though like if people say what's your favourite joke what's your favourite joke oh I can't tell it on air because it's very rude <laughs> <laughs> no, go on you can tell it on air you absolutely can no 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 no. honestly I can't <laughs> it's too early in the morning okay guys we're going to jump into our first topic so the Belfast trial was on everyone's lips over the last couple of weeks we're not not going to get into the details of the trial. The men accused were acquitted in accordance with the law, so they are innocent men. I don't think that we can say the dust has settled by any means, but I do want to talk to you both about the reactions that have been coming in since the verdict was released. You're both very vocal on Twitter about the issues that we are now facing, I suppose, as a country as a result of this verdict. So, Linda, in terms of immediate impact, you've set up an advocacy group. So can you tell us a little bit about that? So um, when the verdict came in on Wednesday, I I actually felt like I'd had a sucker punch to the stomach um, Mm -hmm. because as a, a survivor of sexual violence myself, and I'm quite vocal about that um, I just felt like I'd lived through every detail of the trial with her and it really was triggering and I know an awful lot of people had the same problem in that if if they had been through a, any kind of sexual violence it very much brought them back so when I woke up on Thursday morning I actually felt so low and Thursday morning 7am seems to be Linda thinking time um, because I, I was like we need to do something we need to do something we can't the way that the trial it, it felt like she was on trial yeah, as opposed to the guys oh, um, and I just it, it didn't sit well with me so I went on Twitter and I said you know I'd really like to set up some sort of an alliance to lobby people to legislate better for this to make it easier for people to report we have one of the worst statistics um, in Europe and we haven't had a savvy report since 2002 so the, which is insane the, absolutely insane now the government have have said that they will give a, a million euro um, for to launch another savvy report okay but it's 16 years. You know, it needs to be happening every three years. We need to have up-to-date stats so we can see, is this improving? And if it's not, why not? Yeah. So, um, you know, I went on Twitter and before I knew it, like it was head spinning how quickly we had 50 people in, in a Twitter DM group by the end of Friday. Yeah. Um, we had to start a WhatsApp group. I mean, we're, we're, we're just trying to catch up in I terms find of... The, it's really sad. I now find the term WhatsApp group really triggering. I'm just yeah. like, oh, Jesus. I know, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Um, but, but we've gotten all of these people together. By Saturday morning, we had an op-ed out. We had a mission statement. We had a load of people who were angry and wanted to do something. Um, you know, we were we were actually addressing the, um, the Hit the Streets march last week 
we only started on Thursday morning. Yeah. And by Saturday, we were standing with a speech in front of 5,000 people, roughly, um, and, and talking about who we were and what we were going to do. We had our first meeting on Tuesday. Um, we're in the business now of setting up our stall and yeah. how we are. Um, but this week so far, we've... we've um, Asked the, both the Minister for Education and the Minister for Justice for meetings. Yeah. So the group was called, I don't think we've said the name of the group, so it's Action Against Sexual Violence Ireland and it says on your Twitter bio that you're working to affect changes in legislation and education around the issues of and related to sexual violence. So, I mean, you, you said that that you yourself have suffered sexual violence before. This group wasn't in the works before. This is an immediate reaction Absolutely. to the verdict of the trial. Absolute knee jerk. Right. Absolute knee jerk. And it was... It was just a bunch of people who were feeling the same way who want change. Yeah. Um. And, and we've had enough. Mm. We've had enough of not being protected, not being listened to. Yeah. You know, Um. and it's not just, it's not just a bunch of people who have suffered sexual violence. It's anyone who's been affected by it. You know, it could be, it maybe wasn't them, but it was somebody close to them or, or you know, it's it's people who actually can see a way to make change. So that's what we, you know, we really are looking for a change in legislation and a change in education. Consent classes are a must. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about consent now in a moment. So I suppose the thing what happened, and it was it was such an emotive reaction, I think, from from every person in the country, and you wouldn't be able to go through Ireland and not have known that this trial was happening. I suppose like then the march happened, people got out there and, and voiced their opinions on it. I think people are now starting to feel a little bit like a come down as in, you know, what's coming next? So we we voiced our opinions, there was hashtags on Twitter, the stories were abundant, it was everywhere. We marched and now what's next? Like as in if people are sitting at home and they're listening to this, what's going to happen next or what for example you like being a part of this advocacy group what do you think needs to happen in order to make the changes I do think we need to bear in mind as well what we said about the criminal court earlier like that was in a, a UK court and it is different if that case had been happening in Ireland um, but well, it, I mean I mean yes well technically it's different than we wouldn't have known we wouldn't which have I known. find really yeah. scary yeah. and um, like even the idea of the investigation that's going on and now of whether they've brought Irish rugby into disrepute like the definition of disrepute is that people know about it and care yeah. like if that had happened and we didn't know there wouldn't be a rugby like investigation even do you know what I mean yeah. because it's the re- it's their reaction to the public reaction yeah. so I find that terrifying <laughs> to be honest I know and it's weird to put it in context of the fact that this was in the UK essentially and I think some people kind of n- not forget that but I think you know there's a lot of things that are being said about the case for example the woman you know the fact that so many people know her identity because Belfast is so small and stuff like this these are all coming up but I mean what do you think needs to happen then next in terms of is it legislation? Yeah we need a full judicial review um, in terms of of how we we deal with people who come and make complaints. I mean, I know that there are a lot of people out there who say, what about the false allegations? That's 2%. We need to be looking after the 98%. Yeah. I'm um, sorry, they always get caught. Like, people who are making false accusations are always, it's always discovered because, first of all, the conviction rate is 8% of the 10% reports yeah. that go to a trial. Um so like false accusations they're not getting people landed in jail they're not they might be putting them through some inconvenience and a trial and that's desperate but also 
we are never concern- this concerned with false accusations in any other crime, but no. we're obsessed with protecting men from dealing with the ramifications of sexual violence. It's such a, it's like, yeah, it's such a weird... Would you I call it know. cultural? I don't know. Like. It is. It is cultural. Yeah. It is cultural, and it's it's a culture that's based in misogyny. And you've got to think about it. Um, even even going back to the consent issue, I know that there are some people out there who think that primary school is too early for consent classes to start. But if you have a child and 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 you're saying kiss your auntie or kiss your uncle, and they say they don't want to, yeah, that's their consent, you know. But very often politeness tells us that we have to do that. No, you have to kiss your auntie and uncle. Don't be rude, you know? Yeah. So you're being told that what you want to do with your body, your consent, is you being rude. So therefore, if you if if it comes later and there is an issue where you're not entirely happy with giving full consent and somebody takes it anyway, very often politeness keeps you quiet. Particularly women, because we're socialised to be polite anyway. Yeah. Um, like if you have an opinion, if you're deemed to be rude, if you're deemed to be in any way aggressive, which can mean just firmly saying no to somebody. Yeah. Um, that's going against what we value in women as a patriarchal society. Like, I want to get back to misogyny in in a second, but we're we're talking about consent and and it being brought in to primary school and secondary schools. Well, you've spoken about consent and the importance of education when it comes to consent, but you've also spoken about, and this is me kind of following you on social media and stuff, about, um, can I say the word jaded you are with the topic slightly in terms of the questions that you're being asked? I'm just going to quote you now. Um, You said on Twitter, I'm gas crack and it's frustrating when I'm only ever asked to talk about sex and consent in depressing formal discussions about rape. That's not all consent is. Consent in my life isn't formal or depressing. It's bloody great. And I loved that thread because I was just like, okay, this situation is horrendous. It was awful to watch that trial happen. The verdict was awful the uh, the response to it everybody had their opinions on on what happened but at the same time then like and I saw your interview on primetime and stuff uh, interviewer slightly aggressive <laughs> confrontation with I the saw, Iowa Institute I yeah. saw your six minute battle with the Iowa Institute I don't think six minutes is enough to, no, to talk fair, about anything I will say in fairness to primetime they had a guest on before who went who used double his time we okay. were meant to have a lot longer so right. in fairness to them that yeah. they were planning to let yeah. us talk for but I mean let's talk about minutes. let's talk about consent in a, in a more positive light then like let's let's kind of take what you said I mean you are a gas crack I've known you I've known you <laughs> 10 minutes now and it, <laughs> the, the crack is mighty but I mean like obviously you are a sex columnist and you've been commenting on this so you're going to be asked to talk about this but you want to frame it in a more positive light is that right yeah like I think at, at this moment in time I completely understand and I think I said that like I understand why we're talking about consent in terms of rape and because we're at that point and we haven't moved on but I think the bar for me for how we talk about consent is so low like even the no means no framework is so damaging first of all because it puts the onus on the person to whom sexual violence is being inflicted to stop it which is not always possible and so I think that framework like even a yes means yes framework to me has some issues but it's so much better because it's like oh well that's you're getting positive affirmation and you're making sure it's enthusiastic but to me consent is like an ongoing conversation between two people and yeah consent in my life it's not I mean like I also survived sexual violence like a couple of times um, like a lot of women um, 
But Consent in My Life now is not about preventing sexual violence, thankfully. But it's about an ongoing conversation where it's about good sex. Like, yeah. consent is about good sex. It's not just about saying no to something. It's about going, yes, and what would feel amazing yeah. right now? And let's communicate really clearly as to what we're both into to make sure that this is this experience is mutually empowering, it's mutually emotionally good for us, it's fun and it's pleasurable. And I think, like, a recent example, and I'm going to protect, I'm going to conceal the names to protect the guilty here, but, like, okay. was sleeping with a guy and we weren't in the same city at the time and he was like oh Wait, hey what we were not like in I was traveling for a weekend uh, okay. <laughs> but he, I was like okay so you're a sex columnist and you're magic yeah, yeah. <laughs> amazing I do the I dream of genie oing and I just appear in people's bedrooms um no so I was traveling for a weekend and he was like hey do you want to have some Skype sex and I was just having a really bad body image week and I'd also got the worst hairdo of my life. And do you ever have just one of those weeks where you don't, you kind of get a jolt when you look in the mirror because you don't feel like you look like yourself? Yeah, I was yeah. just having one of those weeks. And so text him back and was like, here, do you want like phone sex? Cool. But I'm just, I'm not in, like, I don't want to see myself. Is that all right? So is phone sex good? And he came back to me and he was like, well, let's not until you feel better and are feeling more comfortable he was like I don't really like the idea of having sex with you when you don't want to look at yourself he was like that doesn't seem like it's a good space for you and I just kind of went oh my god (laughs) Um, but I think and this is what frustrates me a little bit and I had that reaction I was like you were so amazing and so beautifully (laughs) respectful of my emotional state that shouldn't be no, I know. a high bar yeah. to go, mm. do you know what? You're not actually being but as enthusiastic I, yeah. as you usually are. And I don't think this would be as good for you as it possibly could. And I feel like it would be better for me than for you. So yeah. let's just wait. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's such an interesting concept as well, because you yourself are admitting that you weren't feeling that great about yourself, but you kind of thought of an alternative. And I'm not saying that you were just trying to like make the other person in the relationship happy, but you were kind of almost thinking of ways around it and I've done that like hold my hands up completely I've been like oh my god literally the last thing I want to do is have sex but like I might feel like you know he might want to or something like that and you kind of just go like okay well, maybe if I put on some tan I'll feel a bit better yeah. like honestly and we can't I can't deny that I have absolutely not been in the mood to have sex before do you know and I think to a certain degree that's okay and there have been studies that like people have a lot of different reasons to have sex there was a study that came up with I think it was like literally 823 reasons that people have sex but what they did is they divided it into negative reasons and positive reasons and the negative reasons were I'm going to have sex to avoid something so if it's whether to avoid having them be annoyed with me or to avoid a conversation or to avoid like addressing emotional issues but the positive reasons were maybe I'm not feeling as into sex as I usually am or like I'm not hugely turned on but I really appreciate you you've done something lovely for me you know all these like positive reasons of I want to do this so we can feel connected so maybe that we'll start having sex and I feel a bit more turned on and it's not that it's non-consensual it's that your sexual pleasure isn't top of your priority exactly. list and to be fair I would and never that can sometimes be okay and I would never have said to my partner at the time I'm not into it but let's do it anyway do you know yeah. so they would have had no inclination that I wasn't feeling 100% up for it but I do think there's something really powerful in in making the term consent because you mentioned earlier Ro about a whatsapp message being now like a triggering word for you I fear that maybe the word consent is going to start becoming this massive negative word that 
men and women both fear and I think that that is not necessarily a good path for us to go down I feel it's people are so scared of it because they think of it in legalese now as well because we only use it in terms of rape so I'm getting all these like whenever I talk about consent people are like oh what do we have to sign a contract before we go into a bedroom and I'm like no and then I'm saying like no it's about literally going to your partner is this okay does this feel good or like what would feel good and people are like that's ridiculous and there was an article by an Irish journalist uh, Irish woman um, a few years ago where she was literally talking about that and going that's ridiculous like imagine saying is this okay during sex and I felt so sad for her genuinely and I was Mm -hmm. like we need to get to a point where that is completely natural to be having sex with someone and going is this feeling good for you that that whole you know the old fashioned like just pull the covers you know yeah (laughs) it just that's what that smacks of to me you know it's it's got to be you know you should be talking during sex Mm. you should be you should be enjoying it you should be you know having you and know. it's not too formal. Like, no. I can't get over people who think it's too formal. And again, like, <laughs> I'm very clear to not talk about my sex life in the column. But again, like, I was on a second date with a dude and we were making out in his car and he basically wanted to go in for a feel. In and his car! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were going, we were doing a hardcore teenage style. Second and date. <laughs> we were making it, like, he was driving home, making out in the car and he wanted to go in for a feel. And he was just like, hey, can I touch you? And he said it's just really sexy. And I was just like, that's... This should be normal. This should be really yeah. normal. Consent can be sexy. Yeah. Well, and it shouldn't have to be, but yeah. it also can be. It shouldn't not be. We need to stop being embarrassed about sex. Yeah. Just, that's the whole thing. We need to stop being so uptight about it and enjoy it. We're going to come back to this. We are going to take a quick break now for our spotlight on sports. So cricket has been in the headlines of late. Unfortunately, it's not for the best reasons. I caught up with the captain of the Irish women's team, Laura Delaney, earlier in the week. And here's how we got on. Laura Delaney, captain of the Irish women's cricket team, joins me now on the line. Laura, you're very welcome to the show. First off, can you tell me how you got involved in your sport in the first place? My dad has always been involved, so he coached. So when we were younger, myself and my brother were just always down around the club. So we always had a bat or ball in our hands. And then I suppose when I got slightly older, so seven or eight, nine, I started playing with the boys under 11 team in Manchester Cricket Club and just started to work my way through the different age groups. So you actually played with boys when you were a kid first off, did you? Yeah, I did, yeah. There there wasn't actually a girls under 11 team at the time. Um, and even for the girls under 13, we really struggled to actually put out a team because there are only about six or seven of us and you need at least 10 at that age group to right. fulfill a game. So in our kind of spotlight on sport, we do like to shine a light on sports that would be considered niche. So for our listeners and our readers of Her.ie, can you give us a brief outline, and for me as well, if I'm being totally honest, can you give yeah. us a brief outline of what cricket actually is? What are the rules? Yeah, so you have two teams. Each side has 11 players. One team steals or bills and the other team bats. The objective of the batting team is to score as many runs as possible. So I suppose for those that don't really have a, a greater understanding of cricket, it's kind of like baseball, but instead of running around to different bases, we run up and down between the stumps. Yeah. Um, so for a batter, the main objective is, is to get up and down between the stumps as many times as possible or to hit the ball over the break. So you can have a four which goes along the ground or you can hit a six. And then the objective of the fielding side is to try and get the batters out um, by either hitting the stumps, catching the ball um, if the batter hits it into the air, or running a batter out. That makes a lot more sense now. 
does it? I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> no, it does. Robot. It does. I suppose this, the sport itself has, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it does have a perception of being slightly elitist. So Cricket Ireland, I know it launched a five-year plan there a couple of years ago to kind of demystify yeah. the sport for the Irish public and make it more visible and, and also make it a little bit more affordable. But where do you think that that perception comes from originally? Um, probably people watching England and Australia play okay. um, because obviously it's a well-promoted game in those countries but it's also at times viewed as quite a posh sport in my opinion I, but I don't think it is at all to be honest um, and I think one of the things here in Ireland is the fact that when you look at sports such as hockey and Ga and rugby they're played they're winter sports yeah. so when you look at schools the term for those sports is much longer whereas for cricket it's only four or five weeks during the summer yeah. um, in schools so trying to get players involved is, is one of the struggles in, when you look at cricket in comparison to other sports. So I suppose that's why clubs really need to push and also Cricket Ireland need to push to promote the game as much as possible. I was going to ask there, what what is happening currently in terms of development for the sport in Ireland? I mean, when it comes to kids who, who want to play, I know like for me and for my sport, it was very much the same as you. My parents played, so that's how I got into it. So is it an option in schools at the moment or is that something that could be coming in? Um, it's definitely something there's a lot more awareness around the sport. Um, and I think it's something that Cricket Ireland are working incredibly hard to do. The opportunity to play at an Irish underage level now is a lot more prominent than I suppose when I played. There were only it was only Irish under 15s and Irish under 17. Yeah. But now there's an opportunity to play for the Irish under 15s, and I think it's something that Cricket Ireland have recognised that they really need to push and filter, uh, put a better structure in place and I know I can speak for the ladies aspect of it mm. but you know when I go down and have a look at the Irish under 15 through the under 17 through the 19 there's so many players to pick from um, which is brilliant to see because the more players that we have ultimately the more competition that there will be and hopefully the stronger the stronger the side that we'll have. Um, so obviously I have to kind of ask about the latest scandal that's hit the cricket world and that's the ball scuffing incident that happened within the Australian men's team. So there's been bannings, the head coach has resigned. So do you think this will have a lasting impact on your sport? On the sport, I think it's a really sad time for everyone involved and, and the team as well because, you know, they're losing crucial players who have played a big part in, in the side and yeah. you know obviously it's something that you don't condone and you would never promote in the game it's not something that we would ever get involved in um, but I definitely think it's a sad time for Australian cricket and you know hopefully in the next few weeks and in the next, next few months then it will be put to, to rest and you know the team can just keep progressing and you know put that aside because they, I'm sure they have a lot more international fixtures ahead of them and the World Cup, the Men's World Cup is coming up soon as well. So, yeah, hopefully, you know, these things happen in sport as well. You look at the Ben's Days incident mm. um, and then, you know, you look at this. So I'm sure I'm sure this won't be the last of it as well, if I'm honest. Um, but yeah, from our point of view, it's something that obviously we don't, we don't get involved in at all. So. I mean, I think like when you said there about, you know, a sad time for, for cricket, when a sport like this comes to the forefront and it's getting huge media coverage, do you ever think about um, like the ladies side? I mean, I think the Irish women's cricket team, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are 10th in the world. So, I mean, that's a huge achievement. Yeah. Do you wish that there was better coverage of the sport in terms of the media landscape here in Ireland? Oh yeah, definitely. Myself and Shauna Kavanagh were in Australia last winter um, and a lot of the girls now go 
go and play in Australia and New Zealand during the winter to obviously play more and to train mm. harder and I suppose now that we're out of college we have an opportunity to do that yeah. but the promotion or how the game is promoted over there and the awareness over there it's just it's like rugby here everyone knows about it there's games on every night and um, and it's something that I suppose it's a sport that's highly regarded in those countries yeah. and I think Rick Darland are trying to increase the awareness here and you know I think they've shown the women's team a lot more support over the last couple of years I know there's somewhere we have we're asking for 50 days or for it because we have more international fixtures in comparison to a few years ago where you could get away with having you know two weeks of work which you take out of your your holidays yeah. but for us we have New Zealand here at home at the start of June followed by Bangladesh and um, the last few weeks of June and then we head off to Holland at the start of July to play in our World Cup qualifiers which is our main focus yeah. this summer so yeah hopefully we qualify for the World Cup which will be in the West Indies in November I was going to say so obviously there's a big summer ahead for cricket here in Ireland and you did say though that you do work full time so how do you balance your training schedule with being an international athlete as well yeah it's tricky for a lot of us I'm not going to lie and obviously you want more games as an international athlete you want to be playing against better teams but then it comes with that another challenge of having to take time off work yeah. and we work as hard as we can to work around the clock so either we're in very early in the morning so that we can leave late or that we can leave early to get to training or you know we're in the gym early in the morning and then we stay late in the evening but yeah obviously we wish we were professional athletes we're, we're the only team in the top 10 that are not a professional side wow. Um but at the end of the day, we work our lives around it because we love playing for our country. Laura Delaney, captain of the Irish women's cricket team, thank you so much for taking the call and best of luck in the summer. Thank you so much for having me. OK, so we're back. A story caught my eye this week, right? And I really want to get your opinion on it. So a woman in her late 50s has basically detailed what it's like to go through life as a really beautiful person. And of course, the internet had a field day with this one so the headline reads what it's like to go through life as a really beautiful woman and it was published in uh, The Cut which is an online digital publication so I'll just read a quick extract that came kind of towards the beginning of the article so around 8th grade she's American people started to tell me I was pretty I was tall and willowy I had a great figure and I never weighed more than 120 pounds throughout my 20s I started modelling in high school and had waist length dark brown hair and brown eyes when I do the whole makeup eyelashes high heels gown look I am very intimidating so yeah discuss (laughs) (laughs) so we are fascinated with these pieces as a culture like a couple of years ago we had Samantha Brick like a few years before that like an Irish journalist wrote about like what it's like to be skinny basically and I kind of blame editors slightly because okay. I think you can like I'm fascinated by this question as someone who grew up very average looking and had a very awkward puberty <laughs> like I am slightly and I, even for a hot press I interview models yeah. and it was like, like interviewed Ross Purcell and um, Danielle Moyles and Talia Heffernan and I do ask the question of like when did you start realising that you how were beautiful. considered beautiful yeah. and how did that affect you and their answers are always really interesting like I interviewed Talia quite recently and we had a conversation about when she was like 13 getting really weird attention from men like having men follow her off buses and having men chat her up and then also when she started modelling being like 15 and putting it put in bridal shoots right so she was like I felt like a child bride and it's very strange to be selling this thing for women literally twice my age 
And I think there is, I think there is such a thing as beauty privilege and like studies have shown that people are considered beautiful, like get hired more and get raises in work and are considered more competent and more healthy and more pleasant. And I think that's a really interesting thing to talk about. I think beauty but privilege is is such an interesting thing because after I read this article, I, I read all the reaction to it as well. And then I started kind of looking around and I think I sent you guys the link for mm. luckism. Yeah. The, just a very, very broad Wikipedia link, you know, journalism. And um, <laughs> But basically, I didn't know that luckism was a term. It's a very, very new term. Um, but it's about discriminating against people who are unattractive. And they say that it's usually in the workplace but it can be in other social settings as well. So, I mean, I don't know. Have you ever experienced that, I suppose, would be my first question, on either side? So have you have you ever felt privileged because of your beauty or have you ever felt discriminated against because of your attractiveness? Not personally, but I would... I would be inclined to think that it's it's quite true. Um, you know, the, the job that I do... Um, I would have to do quite a bit of interviewing and you have to keep it very much down to the skills and stuff like that to keep it fair um, and and you know I, I, I don't know I think sometimes there is a perception with certain people I'm not saying me personally but you know if, if somebody who say is, is overweight goes for a job and, and there's a perception oh they're lazy do you know what I mean? Yeah. And stuff like that. And I think that sometimes people do have to fight harder to prove their worth um, if if maybe they don't conform to the norm. Yeah. Can I ask about comedy as well? And I yeah. did I did an article on this like eight years ago or something and I interviewed a few female comedians about how they present themselves on stage and how they talk about their lives. And there was a sense that they almost felt like they either had to dress down on stage or if... Uh, if they were if they were generally considered attractive really had to dress down and then had to downplay like oh no but I'm such a klutz and I'm such a disaster and There's, you can't go on stage and go I'm attractive somewhat around that but definitely um, you can't be cocky as a yeah. female comedian you can't be going out and saying I'm brilliant and I'm amazing and look at this that be- is this, I think that's the same for men though because like I think comedians in general are quite self-deprecating I don't think that's a gendered thing like I know a few male comedians and they most of their stand-up is around how much of like a klutz or how much yeah. of a, a waste of space they are as well. But but I do understand what you mean about the general kind of physical features of a woman like being on stage. And I get a lot of this from Amy Schumer. Like a lot yeah. of her stand-up is about, you know, how she became a Hollywood star and then all of a sudden she realized that she was overweight because she had no idea before. Yeah. And she was like, all of a sudden I was being deemed plus size and yeah. I was being That's because she's average and normal. Yeah. Life. But and everyone <laughs> tells yeah. her. Yeah. They tell her and that's the thing. <laughs> she like, was like, there was this one time when she got naked and they were just like, damn, you're brave. And she was like, <laughs> you don't want to be called brave when you get yeah. naked. That's like the yeah. exact opposite of what you want. It's absolutely right. And and, and she is actually probably one of the, the biggest people who talks about that in, in comedy. Um, it's very much... And, and actually, Sarah Millican was um, mm. dress-shamed for wearing oh God, the same dress twice. No, it wasn't that she turned up and everyone mocked her dress and was really nasty about what? her. And she yeah. wrote a piece saying, I felt really beautiful in this dress, to be honest. And it was li- like literally when I opened the magazines, everyone was calling me ugly. And so she deliberately wore it again to, I think, the BAFTAs and yeah. was like, Do you know, I'm not going to let you make me feel bad about myself in this dress because in the dressing room and leaving my the green room at the awards ceremony, I felt That's beautiful. Right. 
and it wasn't until all of you started shaming me that I started to feel mm. crap about myself. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Does that ever go through your head at all? Do you, When you're about to go on stage as a female comedian, do you think about what they're going to think about the way you look? Um, I try not to, okay. but actually... I um, I was doing a gig in, in Whelan's there before Christmas around October and they have a professional photographer and I hated the photos and so you know joined Slimming World immediately um, because I hated that is the image that's out there of me on that stage doing that and it really for myself it was I just I actually have it on my fridge um, to motivate oh me. Oh my god! Yeah, Linda. Yeah, but it's it. it that's me. That's yeah. that's my perception. Nobody went. Oh god, you're looking a bit chubs there. You know. I guarantee. Um, yeah. Like but, I mean, but that's always that's, the way, isn't it? But but that was the that was the 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 trigger. Yeah. You know, seeing that photo of me on stage, and I was like, oh no. I suppose this woman, this fifty-year-old beautiful woman, um, she went on to kind of explain one of the worst things about being beautiful and I think this is when the internet kind of turned on her a little bit so she said one of the worst things about being beautiful is that other women absolutely despise you women have made me cry my whole life when I try to make friends with a woman I feel like I'm a guy trying to woo her women don't trust me they don't want me around their husbands I'm often excluded from parties with no explanation I I read this article and I appreciated the honesty and I think that a woman who comes out and says I went through life being told that I was beautiful. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily her fault. So I don't feel uh, like any kind of anger towards her. But I do feel a certain sense of uh, Irishness and being like, they're not going to like you if you say shit like that. Do you know what Mm. I mean? And it's almost, again, that's probably a cultural thing of us just being self-deprecating. But like, she's just being completely honest about her own experiences. So I kind of respect that as well. And I think we can't ignore the fact that like, we do worship beautiful people. Do you know what I mean? There are so many people who are famous who would not be if they weren't stunning looking. And I don't like standing beside... Talia Heffernan if I'm being mm. totally honest like I've been at, at events when there have been these beautiful models there and I'm five foot nothing and I just don't want to get a picture beside them but I don't I would never be rude to them or anything I am slightly in awe of them but models are like they're crazy beautiful and I mean they can't but know that it's their job it's their profession you know sure there's billions and billions and billions spent making you feel like that yeah because yeah. you're not going to buy the products and you're not going to join the clubs and you're not going to do this yeah. unless you feel like that nothing is going to make me 5'7 I have tried <laughs> I have tried everything nothing is going to make me 5'7 but, but in terms of how you feel about yourself yeah. you know it's, it's the aspiration yeah. and these people are the aspiration they're the ones that are being set up as the this is what you should be you know trying to aim for yeah I think we need to start taking a little bit of responsibility around it though to be honest because I think we like they've proven that magazines that have tried to do an overhaul and go look we'll use real people and we'll use like people who have curvy bodies or whatever who don't like fit all of the patriarchal beauty standards they do less well like we don't buy them yeah um, because we want to see the beautiful people and have the dream and then feel crap about ourselves and buy the stuff but like I did an experiment for myself because I re- I started following like all oh, influence and beautiful people on Instagram yeah. and was feeling crap about myself and then started deliberately like deleted all of them and started did, did it make you feel bad about yourself because of their lifestyle or because of the way that they looked 
a bit of both, okay. I think. And I think they tie in together, like like beauty and standards of beauty and the whole industry that's around yeah. beauty. It is inherently tied into capitalism and making you buy crap. One hundred. Um, and like even their breakfast and stuff. I'm like, oh, my breakfast just didn't look like that. <laughs> like it never looks that good. But I deliberately started following all these body positivity Instagram accounts and people who are doing like beauty shoots but have disabilities or who have you know body types that are not normally worshipped in our society and particularly people of colour and just all these different accounts that strayed from the really skinny white woman aesthetic and first of all like it did it's I stopped feeling crap all the time but then I genuinely started appreciating different kinds of beauty more and I remember like a couple of relationships ago was with a guy and I remember it was the first time I'd been with a guy and when I'm in a relationship with people I think it's like healthy to go here that person's gorgeous because like it gets rid of any jealousy if you can share it together so we'd be walking around going wow yeah of course um and so I but he was the first guy I'd ever been with who commented on different types of beauty like he would call it if there was like a curvy rockabilly chick with loads of tattoos he'd be like oh my god she's amazing or if there was like a really skinny androgynous looking chick like he'd be like oh my god she's awesome yeah and it made me believe him when he complimented me because I was like you genuinely do appreciate different types of beauty and I've seen you embody that marry him <laughs> uh, no he's an ex for a reason uh, no but that these men who do you these men that you date are amazing it was really huge for me and I think I had had a lot of relationships and friendships even with men and I had seen them abandon like fundamental priorities that they had for a relationship like you know the, those really basic no this is what I need they had abandoned them for really beautiful women. When I know that if a really lovely girl who was very average looking came along and had, you know, didn't check that particular box, they wouldn't have looked twice at her. Yeah. But because she was beautiful, they did. I remember that really, really messing with me and going, yeah. you would never, like, not that I'm trying to get with you, like genuinely it wasn't a like sexual jealousy thing, but I was like, if I looked like me and came up and was that person you wouldn't look twice at me but you will for a beautiful woman so I think we can't ignore that this crap exists but I also think our reaction to pieces like this yeah we do hate even though we reward beautiful women we hate them knowing Mm. I know and that's kind of one of the things as well and I think that that piece was so interesting because it caught my eye because I knew that the Twitter reaction was just going to be like who does this one think she is but at the same time the actual piece ended in a really heartbreaking way I think I mean she was talking about how it doesn't matter how beautiful you are throughout life because the moment you hit a certain age you become completely invisible and and she said that it was I'd say and because she's been beautiful and modelling and stuff so like Mm. a classical like her job was the way that she looked to admit that then that all goes away and that all stops I think is something if we're being completely honest as women you know we know that ageism is there we know that like we all talk about how awful it is that we get catcalled and stuff but eventually that's going to stop and she said that you know it made her feel completely worthless which I think is quite heartbreaking and if that's where you're you know you've you've put your worth in your whole life and then all of a sudden that goes that's that's life changing she actually said I've lost all of my value because like her technically her looks were were her currency you know that was what was giving her so true I have a friend um, 
um, I have a beautiful friend. She's 85 years old, 84 years old. She'll kill me. Lynn Ruth Miller, um, the oldest female stand up uh, in the world at the minute. And um, she does burlesque too. So I Hero. Where is she? She's That's based amazing. in London at the minute. Um, but she's fantastic and I love her. Um, and we hang out, you know, because I want to be her when I grow up. So, yeah. you know, that's that's. Um, but I've been shopping with her and I've been in a shop and she's buying stuff and all of the sales assistants talk to me. Oh, because they assume she can't even want to try. Like, or that and I was like, she's well, she's the one with the money. Why are you talking to me? That's yeah. crazy. You know, and it, it is so true. You become invisible. And I, I worked with a lady last year and I walked in and she was in her 60s. And I went, oh my God, your hair is amazing. It was bright pink. And she went, I am sick of being invisible. Yeah. Wow. That's really real. I remember having a moment and again, it's just show, like this is, I think a thing about feminism is everyone's like, oh, you know everything. And I'm like, no, the point is you're always learning stuff and no matter how much you study this, like we've, these messages have just been beaten into us so mm. much that they do take so much work to overcome and I think it's been willing to try and overcome them but even recently I was in the airport and I was just like people watching I was like do you know that's really like there's loads of couples in this like middle aged couples and all the men are like really attractive and the women are like lovely but very average looking and then it I literally like the second I thought that I was like that's because you've tra- been trained to find older men attractive and you've been trained to devalue older women I like that's to- all that is wow. and I think like it is how you perceive things like I think a lot of people talk about like oh you see beautiful younger women and less attractive dudes and then it flips as we get older and it's like no it's it's the same reason that we think men look great without makeup because we've never been mm told that they look crap without it. But it's become a joke, like it's a joke in Hollywood, you know, that you can't get a job if you're over 40 and then it's the George Clooney effect of like, well, when he keeps getting older and older, he just keeps getting more attractive and more attractive. Mm. But I don't know if the women in Hollywood who are over 40 and over 50 themselves are doing anybody any favours by continuing to make jokes about this because it's just going to continue to be talked about. Like, maybe that's just well, not... I think, it's, I think that's also because women aren't allowed like genuinely emotionally complain about situations we have to make a joke or else we're aggressive feminists or else we're shrill we're hysterical we're angry getting a backlash like this lady is yes I know it's it's kind of is it a bit of a minefield as well I mean I don't think she's getting a huge amount of backlash I think like it's a good thing for people to come out and say those things and I think that what might be the issue is that it's making us kind of take a look at ourselves and I think that's why people get offended sometimes by issues of beauty because I know that I've definitely done things to try and make myself like look a certain way for certain people and stuff like this and every time that I do that I do slightly feel a bit like oh crap am I am I a feminist or am I just like the same as everybody else you know no I'm very down like first of all I think we've demitted and again, I think this is patriarchy doing this. I think we've been forced into this situation where every single choice a woman makes, it's like, is this feminist? Where no other ideology is forced to follow that form of constant interrogation like, honestly, all the time. I've been asked before, or or no, people have said to me before, like, I thought you were a feminist. It's like, well, I, I am a feminist, but do I have to continuously prove that by honestly like being on my mark at all times no like sometimes I want to get a blow dry do you know what I mean like that doesn't mean that I'm not a feminist <laughs> but and, it, it, and you don't see misogynists ever 
been asked to prove that they're such a mess. Yeah, <laughs> they just do it naturally. <laughs> it definitely is um, one for the books, anyway. But I would love to know who that lady was. I'd love to actually sit down and have a have a chat with her. Do you as know well. what the thing I'm most glad about, and I think the one really smart thing her editors did, they didn't include a picture. Yeah, because mm. everybody was dying for one, and yeah. it was literally so we could go. You're not that pretty. What are you talking about? 100%. The same way people mm. do it to Samantha Brick and Samantha yeah. Brick, there were like <laughs> the way she talked about societal issues afterwards. I'm not a fan. Yeah. Um, but people oh, literally we would have dragged her. Yeah. We the fact that she was her. saying she was beautiful and people were like, well, you're not that beautiful. I know. Yeah. So what's coming up next for you guys before I let you go? Ro, your column with the Irish Times is going very strong. So tell people how they can get involved for your advice. It's, it's kind of anonymous, isn't it? Yeah, so we have an anonymous submission form so you can put in um, questions, send them in and I will never know contact details. I won't know anything. Um, so just look up Irish Times Dear Ro and we have a specific page there. Well, if people are sending in questions, please do, please give me information that is pertinent because <laughs> a lot of people, times people like leave it their age or if they're in a relationship or yeah. their gender and that can affect you know, how I perceive the situation. So um, give as much information as you can. Yeah. And ask yeah, about penises. It is a sex column. Yeah. I really do want to answer like any questions that people have. <laughs> I don't want people to have a perception of like oh it's the Irish Times so I can't ask this. Uh you can yeah. yeah my editor is great and really supportive and sends me every single question and um, we've just been getting a lot of the same type of question and I'm happy to answer that but I feel I'm almost scared that it's because people are like oh I know she answers this type of question I want all of them I wrote for the Dublin Enquirer for years we answered some mad stuff and I'm, it was great I'm going to send you lots of questions awesome. <laughs> I may not send it through the form I might just like WhatsApp you and then you can just keep it anonymous though that'd be brilliant I have said to friends before like oh that's really interesting you I use that um, sometimes they say yes sometimes they stop talking to me <laughs> it's anonymous it's, it's like fine yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you can have that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Linda tell us how can people get more information um, on your advocacy group so, and also what's the next kind of step for you guys so currently at the moment we're setting up our departments and our subcommittees so if anyone wants to get involved please email um, it's um, aasvireland at gmail.com mm-hmm. um, and we will send you out all of the contact details that you'll need for the various different subcommittees um, we're just processing setting up at the minute yeah. um, and, and deciding what we are in terms of are we a non-profit are we a charity yeah. and stuff like that so we're doing a bit of background work um, our next meeting is going to be in A4 Sounds on the 17th of April mm-hmm. um, 8 till 10 so if anyone wants to come yeah. to that too please do Look I know you said that it was kind of a knee-jerk reaction and stuff earlier on but I think that it's an incredible thing that you're doing so I really like I'm looking forward to seeing I how it goes I think it's needed I think it's needed I think so it's needed for now. the people mm-hmm. I think it's needed for the, the pressure it's going to be a lot of work yeah and there's a long road ahead and I don't think any of us can sit here and be like Grant we set up this advocacy group now everything's going to be perfect there's so many different conversations that need to happen now moving forward but at least the conversation has started we've, we've a huge different level of different types of subcommittees and we won't be just lobbying government we'll be lobbying businesses we'll be talking codes of conduct yeah. stuff like that so there's an awful lot to do but we have a very clear path on what we want to do so um and I'm really blessed with the people that, that have come forward and gotten involved so far. So yeah. fingers crossed, look for some change. Yeah, absolutely. That is all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much to my guest panellists, Ro McDermott and Linda Hayden. Thanks for a spotlight on sport this week. Laura Delaney, I'm Neve Marr and we will chat to you next week.